Well, good day, everyone. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, please fill us with your spirit this morning that we would be receptive to your word, that we would be transformed as a result of this message uh, that you are speaking to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, about a month ago, we decided that it would be a fun experience for our kids to head up the mountain to Blackheath and spend some time playing in the snow that had fallen overnight. You might uh, remember the day. In the providence of God, the snow had fallen early on a Saturday morning. And so we thought, well, we live in the mountains. This would be too good an opportunity for us to give up, not to head up there. Yes, James had a 10.30 soccer game uh, here at Winmalee. But surely we had enough time to make it there and back, build a snowman or two, have a good snow fight. By the time we got to Wentworth Falls, things looked a lot less promising. The traffic had condensed and by Katoomba, things were at a standstill. Already the trip had taken an extra 20 minutes and Google was telling me that we'd need 35 minutes to take the usual 10-minute trip from Katoomba to Blackheath. I looked at the clock. We were no chance of making James's game if we pressed on. Sorry, kids. We're going to have to give up on the snow this morning. I broke the news. And, reluctantly, uh, despite the protest in the back seat, but convinced the decision was right, I turned the car around. Now, thankfully, the blow was softened by a flu. A few snow flurries that fell in Katoomba, we jumped out of the car and and played in them on a nature strip. Um, but we had, to go, we had to turn back. Occasionally, there are times in life when the most obvious and sensible and rational thing that you can do is give up. How about this one? It's Friday night, we're at home, and my wife tells her boss of two and a half days that she's quitting her job. It had been sold as family-friendly and flexible, but after being commissioned a project that Friday that was due on Monday, uh, it was quickly obvious that this job was not going to be good for anyone. Or what about this one? Uh, there's a member of the Anglican Church of Springwood staff team, I'm not naming any names, who has confessed that he just doesn't see the point of jogging since in any instant you could choose just to stop the whole thing, stop all the pain and enjoy a leisurely stroll. I'll let you guess who it is. Obviously it's not Lego, um, that should be clear. Occasionally there comes a time in life when the most obvious, sensible and rational thing you can do is give up. Now for the Christian believer, many of us face moments like this too when it comes to our faith in Christ. Moments where it can seem like the most rational and obvious and sensible thing you can do is give up your trust in him. I know of a man, a friend of a friend, who had an active faith in his young adult years. Uh, he was also a brilliant physicist. As he climbed higher and higher up the academic ladder, uh, the way others in his field mocked the Christian faith just made it harder and harder for him to keep on going. And in the end, his heart captured by the goal of making it to the top in his field, he gave up on his faith. It had simply become for him the obvious thing to do. 
For the first century church in Philadelphia, which is the church we're looking at today, it almost certainly would have been the case that from a worldly perspective, giving up on Christ would have been the obvious, sensible, rational thing to do. They are a small church, a church of little strength, verse 8 tells us, um, so probably small in number and influence. And they are a church battered by the non-Christian world around them, facing intense pressure to disobey Jesus and to deny him. But though giving up on Christ may have seemed to some of them to be the obvious thing to do, they hadn't. The church had stood firm. And so what Jesus says in this letter is designed to encourage them, to refresh them. They had stood so firm so far. Here's what they needed to do to keep on standing firm. And while at the moment you may not feel the, the pull of that thought that it might be sensible for you to give up your faith, certainly you have brothers and sisters in your life who do or who will, especially in the persecuted church around the world. We've heard uh, a little bit this morning about the church uh, in Iran, but in other places around the world, there is intense pressure on Christians. Why would you keep living that way? What are you going to pray for those people? Or where would you point them if they came to you despairing and about to chuck the whole thing in? Well, I've got five things for us today that we can take on board from this letter and the first two are about who Jesus is, and the final three are about what Jesus will do for his people. They're there uh, in your outlines. If you're at home, you may have um, printed an outline off. Uh, it'd be good to have your Bibles open and those outlines there in front of you. So firstly, we see in this letter that Jesus is the one authority worth listening to. The letter begins, as each one does, uh, with Jesus introducing himself in a particular way, a way pertinent to the church that he's addressing. And here in verse 7, his introduction comes in two parts. Jesus begins by introducing himself as the one who is holy and true. Now, this is a description found elsewhere only of God himself. So it points here to Jesus' divinity. But it also contrasts with the others who were making assessments of the church at Philadelphia and others who make assessments of the Christian church today. The Jews of the Philadelphian synagogue had made all sorts of assessments about this church. They were blaspheming God, they were denying the law. They're the sorts of things that we can assume they were saying. But those Jews, verse 9 tells us, were liars. But as Jesus speaks, his message to the Philadelphian Christians here, he does so... Not as a liar, as, as the Jews were there in Philadelphia. He does so as the one who is the very embodiment of integrity and purity. He is holy. And as the one whose assessment is unimpeachable. He is true. So as you're tempted to chuck it in, or as others come to you in that situation, don't listen to their lies. Listen to his truth. That's the implication here, a word equally applicable for us today when opponents of Christianity slander us. Jesus then continues his self-description, calling himself the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, 
no one can open. Now, if you listen closely to our first Bible reading, uh, Isaiah 22, you might recognise that phrase comes from that passage. It's a time uh, in Isaiah 22 where God describes how he would replace King Hezekiah's arrogant palace administrator with another man. In Hezekiah's day, the key to the house of David, which probably was actually a literal key to the palace or to the city, represented total authority in the kingdom. He determined the opening and the closing of the gates, the one who held this key. He determined who had access to the corridors of power. He determined how the kingdom would run. By describing his possession of the keys, uh, then, what Jesus is effectively saying is, I am the one with total authority in God's kingdom. Now imagine how this would have been received by the weak, persecuted Philadelphian Christians who had effectively been shut out from life in their city. The influence of the Jews which had led to closed door after closed door. Well, all of a sudden they didn't look so powerful, did they? When it comes to what matters, God's eternal kingdom, accessing that kingdom, Jesus is the one with all the power. So that's the one about to speak to them in this letter. The one with not only power, with not only truth, but power and truth combined. And for the person tempted to give up their faith, it, it really matters who they listen to. Is it the voice of the world, so often deceived and self-interested? Or is it the voice of truth and power, the one authority really worth listening to? The second thing we're given to keep on standing firm in this letter is that Jesus is the one who knows the cost. Have you ever had the experience of working really hard at something? You know, you've poured in your blood and your sweat and your tears and then someone comes along and utterly fails to appreciate it. I had a mate who worked in the Canberra Public Service who would spend weeks carefully researching and writing these reports. He'd be up early in the morning, he'd stay up late at night just so he could hit the deadline only to find out that the report would sit on some senior official's desk and the government would announce a change in policy direction anyway. Or what about this? You've, you've spent all day at home cleaning the house when your spouse comes home and breezily wonders, so what did you get up to today? Well, it's never like that with Jesus. He knows what it costs each and every one of his faithful followers in reputation, in energy, in mental anguish for the lost and more. Verse 8, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you a door that no one can shut. We'll come back to that a little bit later on. Uh, I know your deeds. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So there's been pressure to conform to the pagan world around them. Their strength has been sapped and yet they have held on. Faithful to Jesus' word, faithful to their Lord. And Jesus has seen it all. He's been watching on with the pride of a parent. And we need to remember too that Jesus' knowledge of what it costs them is not just from what he's watched, what he's observed. It actually comes from what Jesus himself has experienced as well. Jesus himself was obedient to death. Those words from Philippians 2. He knows what it's like to be 
betrayed, to be maligned, to be put to death even, all while feeling the temptation of that easy road out. Remember Satan's temptation? All this could be yours if you worship me, the easy way out. So when Jesus says, I know you have been faithful in the face of pressure, he really does know what it's cost. He knows it from the inside, from his own experience. And for the Christian who feels the pull of the easy way out, who is weakened and tempted to give up on their faith, that's a wonderfully strengthening truth, isn't it? A great truth to grip hold of and to pray for others who are suffering to hold on as well. So Jesus is the authority worth listening to and he's the one who knows the cost. Two things about who Jesus is. The next three encouragements to stand firm are things that Jesus will do for his people. So number three, Jesus will vindicate his people. They may be suffering now, but there will be a day when they will be lifted up and those who oppose them will be brought low. See, the main source of the attack against the Philadelphian Christians was members of the local Jewish synagogue. While it's true that lots of Jews had become Christians as the gospel went out in the first century, it's also true that uh, there were many who didn't become Christians. The New Testament gives us heaps of examples of of Jews who reject the gospel and who then militantly oppose God's people. And so when Christians refused to participate in emperor worship, uh, which Roman authorities expected as a civic duty, these anti-Christian synagogue members would then dob them in to the Roman authorities who would then torture them, even put them to death for refusing to offer sacrifices to the emperor. And the Jews, uh, by the way, paid a tax to be exempt from this uh, emperor worship. Now, all this explains why, in verse 9, the Jews are called the synagogue of Satan. They were doing Satan's work of false accusation to draw people away from God. In the end, though, verse 9 says, these Jewish oppressors at Philadelphia would be exposed and the Christians would be vindicated. Have a look at verse 9. They claim to be Jews, though they are not, Jesus says. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. See, the Jews at Philadelphia, they thought they were God's people. They were ethnically Jewish, they were circumcised, they followed the food laws, they kept the Sabbath. But their hearts were actually hardened towards God. They'd failed to recognise Jesus as God's heaven-sent King and Saviour. And now they were persecuting God's people. But Jesus would not allow this situation to go on forever. A day was coming when reality would assert itself and they would find themselves humbled at the feet of God's true people. Now again, imagine how encouraging this news would have been for the Christians there at Philadelphia. On the one hand, it gave them clarity. Yes, you really do belong to God's people, though there are others who claim otherwise. On the other hand, it relieved them from any thought they may have had about trying to fight back. They didn't need to fight back because one day the truth would come out. They would be vindicated. Jesus will vindicate his people. 
Whatever opposition comes our way as Christians, we can endure knowing that things will be set right in the end. Fourth encouragement to stand firm. Jesus will protect his people. He will guard us and he will keep us and he will bring us safely into glory. Verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now we can be 100% certain that this is not a guarantee that no Christian would ever be physically, mentally or, or even mentally... Uh, uh, physically or even mentally harmed, either in Philadelphia then or in any other church since. Indeed, the New Testament is pretty clear that we should expect this kind of thing as the Philadelphians themselves had experienced. Now, what this is, is a promise of spiritual protection. Jesus will keep his people from falling away. Uh, there are a few suggestions about what the hour of trial in verse 10 might refer to. Um, probably it refers to a season of general hardship that would soon descend on the region. Certainly, it seems like it will take place in the lifetime of the Philadelphians. Otherwise, this promise would have held no meaning for them. And the fact that it's going to come on the whole world doesn't stop it from being a regional thing. A number of times in the New Testament, the phrase whole world refers to the Roman Empire. No, it seems that it's something general, like an earthquake. We, we know they were quite common in the area, or maybe something like a plague or a famine. And its effect will be to test the people, to try them. In other words, it's going to reveal to them what they have put their trust in. What is it that they are depending on? Now, we've seen that this year with COVID, haven't we? For many people, COVID has revealed that humanity is not as in control as we had thought, and it's shaken people's faith in human progress. In the words of the passage, it's been a test for the inhabitants of the earth. But in any such trial, however hurt physically or mentally or materially Christians will be, if we endure patiently, Jesus will take us, he will keep us into glory. Indeed, some Christians will even lose their lives, but Jesus' promise here is that no Christian will lose their eternity. The fifth and final encouragement to stand firm is there in verse 12. Although, as we're going to see, it's actually been there uh, through the whole passage. It's that Jesus will reward his people with the eternal presence of God. As we've seen, each of these letters in Revelation 2 and 3 conclude with a victor's promise. And while here there are two main images, the pillar in the temple and having God's name written on the victor, together these images point to the reward of being in God's presence for eternity. In Psalm 27 we read that the great King David desired one thing and one thing only, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David says in that psalm that he longed to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to take comfort in his shelter and to see his goodness. See, for all his flaws, David knew that the greatest thing in the world was to have God himself, to enjoy fellowship with him 
all his days. That was the point of the temple, remember. It was where you would go to enjoy fellowship with God. Well, that's the thought that's behind the first part of the victor's promise here in verse 12. When Jesus says that he will make the victor a pillar in the temple of my God, never again will they leave it. The faithful believer will be a permanent fixture, a pillar in God's presence. Then the second part of the promise has these three names being written on the victor. The city of Philadelphia had twice been renamed in the first century, so no doubt uh, this idea would have resonated with them. So you have, uh, first of all, the name of God. Secondly, the name of God's city, which we find out in Revelation 21 is actually a picture of God's people, the church. And then thirdly, the new name of Jesus. Probably new because at his return he'll appear in his full glory which was concealed in his first coming. Now, when you write your name on something, it expresses who that thing belongs to. This, this Bible here, it's got, got my name uh, there in the front of it. This Bible belongs to Nick Collier. It's got my name on it. And so here we're reminded that on into eternity, all faithful believers will together belong to God. We are his and we always will be. So that's the untold blessing that lies ahead of us. If we trust Christ, enjoyment of God's unbroken presence, our good and loving God's unbroken presence, and that for all eternity, we will dwell in the house of the Lord. We will gaze on his beauty. We will see his goodness. But as I hinted at before, the promise of this reward, it's really just the culmination of where the whole letter has been going right from the beginning. The whole letter has been about assurance of eternity in the presence of God. Jesus began by introducing himself as the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. And then in verse 8, he tells the Philadelphians that I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Well, here in these promises of verse 12, at the end of the letter, we catch a glimpse of what lies beyond that door. A church may be weak, it may be buffeted on every side, but there is the guarantee that untold glory lies ahead. The door is open and no one can shut it. The Christian's future is assured. All we need to do is hold on. And that's where I want to conclude today, uh, with that command of verse 11. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown there'll be plenty of moments where it will seem like the most obvious sensible and rational thing to do is to give up on Jesus for you for others you know for persecuted Christians around the globe but it's as we see the bigger picture I remember who Jesus is and what he will do for his people that Christians are strengthened and so we can hold on. The 19th century Anglican minister Charles Simeon, a hero of mine, uh, was a man who copped a whole lot of pressure during his ministry at Cambridge. In his first 10 years uh, there, the members of the church locked up their pews. They used to have these little doors, these gates on the pews, so that those who did want to hear him preach had to stand in the aisles. All right? 10 years of that. 
In the town and the university, he was ostracised. People didn't even want it to be associated with him. And more than once, he was threatened with physical violence. When asked one day by a friend, 49 years on into his ministry there, how he had held on for so long, this is what he said. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. He was a man who saw with clarity who Jesus was and who knew with conviction that Jesus would keep his people on into the glory of God's eternal presence. And so he held on to the end. I can bear the pricking of my legs. Don't, don't you love that phrase? Well, may the Lord give his people such clarity and conviction in our generation. Amen.